The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Last week, a stunning op-ed appeared in the New York Times. It was called Stop Mocking Vegans by columnist Farid Manju, who's not himself a vegan or a vegetarian. Now, he beseeched his readers to lighten up on us because, and I quote, many omnivores understand the toll that meat wreaks on the planet. And we can't help but feel the tension between loving animals in the abstract while eating them with abandon. All this creates feelings of defensiveness. So when a vegan comes along, their very presence seems like an affront. Now, this tells me that those who aren't moved by our undercover videos or impressed by our cholesterol levels can only be reached one way, and that is with food, the kind that convinces anybody that they're not missing out on a thing, and that's what we'll talk about on today's program. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I am your host, Victoria Moran. You will find my books and blog and film and training academy, as well as show notes with details about today's guests at MainStreetVegan.net. So do take a look there. After the break, we'll be hearing from Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery. And it is now my pleasure to introduce Seth Goldman, executive chair of Beyond Meat. But he already knew the good food business because he is the TEO emeritus and co-founder of Honest Tea, the nation's top-selling organic bottled tea. In 2011, Honest Tea was was acquired by the Coca-Cola company, becoming the first organic and fair trade brand in the world's largest beverage distribution system. Seth is a graduate of Harvard and the Yale School of Management, where he serves on the board, and he is a Henry Crown Fellow of the Aspen Institute. Welcome, Seth Goldman. Thank you, Victoria. So nice to be with you. Well, and I just thank you so much for taking time from, I know, your schedule that has to be dazzlingly busy because you guys are truly setting the world on fire. And it's just exciting to know that you're here with us today. So if you would be so kind, give us a little history lesson. How did you start Honest Tea? How did you get to Beyond Meat? Fill us in. Sure. Sure. Well, Honest Tea started 21 years ago with a simple uh, fact that I was thirsty. You know, I... (laughs) I had gone for a run, and I went to a beverage cooler, and when I looked at what was there, everything was really sweet, and I said, I don't want anything this sweet with this much calories and and this much sugar. I can't imagine everybody else does, and I found at least one other person who didn't, who was my co-founder. He had been my professor from business school, Barry Nailbuff, and he had come up with the name Honest Tea as the idea for a less sweet uh, iced tea, and so we started brewing tea in my kitchen, and I managed to get it in front of Whole Foods with five thermoses and an empty Snapple bottle. We pasted a label on, and that was how we got started and um, built the business, you know, very much um, from bootstrapping to 
door-to-door sales and um, over, as you said, through, uh, I guess, basically the next 13 years grew it to a scale where you became the top-selling organic bottled tea. And, and I continue to spend half of my time there. But shortly after we sold to Coke in 2012, I got hungry. <laughs> One of the fact is I've been hungry for longer than that. My family's been a vegetarian now for 14 years. And always, we became vegetarian not because we disliked the taste of meat. We became, you know, we, we did it out of personal conviction. And so as we, um, we were always missing the taste of a hamburger, missing the chance to have a cookout, you know, missing the chance to invite people over. And so um, my wife read this article about this company out in California that was getting, um, preparing to launch in retail called Beyond Meat and said, boy, if this company would work, it'd be a great you know, thing for us to support, and and partially because we'd love to see it succeed, but also because we're hungry, and it'd be great to be able to enjoy those types of meat occasions again. And so I sent an email to info at beyondmeat.com, and I um, connected with Ethan Brown, the CEO, and and we hit it off and have become partners in building the business, and and I, you know, joined the board and became chair of the board, and have just really enjoyed um, the ability to to scale, you know, that um, the beverage company, the organic fair trade beverage company, at the same time, we, we really take on, challenge this whole um, category of um, meat and re- redefine meat as plant, you know, or can be meat as plant-based protein. Well, lots of uh, guests in the health side come on our show and talk about listen to your body, but my gosh, when you listen to yours, commerce <laughs> happens. That's, <laughs> you have a gift. So I've heard that the Beyond Meat mission isn't just to come up with a substitute this or that or something new to eat or something that's a little healthier, but very strongly to make meat out of plants. Tell us how you do that. Right. Well, the key there is to redefine, rethink how we treat meat, what what we call meat. So Typically, if you talk to a group of people and you say, what is meat? They're going to say, well, it's protein that's harvested from an animal. Um, But instead, if you can say, if you define meat not by its origin, but you define it by its composition, which is to say meat is really just an assembly of amino acids that um, make the proteins. It's uh, the lipids that form the fats. Of course, it's 70% water, just like our bodies. And, you know, some trace minerals and carbohydrates. Well, that's a very different that leads you to a very different way to make meat. Um, obviously, the animal is one way to make meat, but um, in, and what you know what the animal essentially does is it takes in plants, it uses its digestive and, and skeletal system to create muscle, which is then you know as I said converted made into to meat. Uh, but instead, if we can take plants and extract the um, the key nutrients from the plants that the animal does. Uh, but do it directly from the plants, we can do it in a way that's much more efficient, much more environmentally friendly, and, of course, much more compassionate. I heard a statement from Ethan Brown, and I'm not going to be quoting him directly, but the gist of it was that all meat is a processed food, that animal meat is plants processed through an animal, plant meat is plants processed another way. (laughs) And I love this concept because I do sometimes hear this sort of holier-than-thou thing of, oh, well, I wouldn't eat that. It's processed. What do you say to that? (laughs) Well, you're right. The the first point that all meat does come from plants, that's certainly the case. Uh, And this idea of process, as Ethan said, there really is. It's just a tale of two different processes. And you know, somebody who calls our product too processed should also have a problem eating pasta because we use the exact same equipment to make our product that someone uses to make pasta. And I haven't heard too many people say pasta is, is too much of a processed food. Um, and as, you know, Ethan referenced in his comment, when you get inside what the processes involved in creating animal-based meat, whether it is the antibiotics, the hormones, the um, often GMOs that are used, of course, the, the treatment of these sentient be- creatures, um, there's a lot to that process that re- would make someone uncomfortable. And, you know, it was interesting, my, my son, my oldest son, he was the one who converted our whole family to vegetarian, and he said, you know, people um, should uh, only eat meat if they feel comfortable killing, you know, the animal. Um, and uh, a lot of people basically are delegating the killing by, um, you know, just buying buying their meat in a 
in a, in a, in a sterile package. Um, and you don't have to think about the process underlying that. And we, on the other hand, would, you know, and Ethan has invited people to come see our process. It is a very simple, clean process. It certainly doesn't cause any indigestion watching it. Oh, that's wonderful. And it also reminds me of the day I spent in a slaughterhouse, which is the exact opposite. So how fabulous that this is happening. Now, back in, I think it was May, um, you had an IPO (laughs) that made everybody really pay attention. I believe this is the first plant-based food product that went public. Is that correct? As far as I know, I mean, there's there are, you know, large companies like Kellogg that do have plant-based products as part of their offerings. But as far as I know, we were the only company, you know, solely focused on that. So do you have a sense of, of the demographic of, of your investors, the kinds of people who are interested in this product? You know, we don't, uh, we do have a, we have a sense of the demographic of the consumer. Um, we don't get information directly on the, on the investor, but on the consumer, What's interesting is that, uh, of course, we, you know, there certainly are people who are vegan and vegetarian. But when we looked at the grocery um, channel, the shopping cart in, of the Kroger, the people who went to Kroger and bought our product, 93% of them also had meat in their shopping cart, animal-based meat. So that for us was a really in, exciting insight because it, it helped us realize we, we had always aspired, you know, one of the strategies for this business has been to get the product merchandised in the meat section because it was the belief that if we did that, we'd be able to make the product available and accessible to a much larger part of the population than they, I don't know, you may know better numbers, but I've heard roughly 5% of the population is, you know, vegan or vegetarian. And so for us, that was an exciting step. In terms of the investing, I've heard that um, it's a very popular stock among millennials, but but I, I you know I, I don't have any definitive data on that. Uh, well, that would make sense because this is a very popular way to eat among millennials. So, did you have any flack with the stores when you said that you wanted the product to be in the meat <laughs> section? Yeah, we did. Initially, the stores weren't gonna weren't in favor of it. You know, the, the um, there's a pretty traditional channel, and the people in the grocery stores are usually pretty traditional. And we finally got Whole Foods to take a, a, a make a, a, the bet with us and say we're going to give it a try. It was Whole Foods in the Rocky Mountain region, and um, they were the first to put it there, and it did so well that it spread. And then we got um, Safeway up in Northern California to agree to do it, and within a the week of the announcement about Safeway, Kroger reached out and said they wanted to do it. And um, from there, it made it much easier because the product you know, really did sell. And for these grocery stores, which especially a lot of mainstream grocery stores, they weren't seeing much growth. And so to see you know, a, a, a brand and a product grow that quickly made it uh, much easier <laughs> going forward for them to merchandise it the right way. Oh, I'm sure. So what's going on now with Beyond Meat? What are you guys really excited about at this moment? Yeah, lots of things. It's it's such an exciting moment, not just for Beyond Meat, for all of us um, and I, for your listeners as well. This is this is really a movement that um, we, we have all created. And so you're seeing and we are seeing restaurant chains get on board and, and with this product and with this idea and with this platform and with this approach in a way that we could never have imagined. I mean, just uh, last week, we did this uh, one-day test with Kentucky Fried Chicken in Atlanta, and as you <laughs> may have heard, it we kind of overwhelmed the store. And I, I say we, it wasn't uh, beyond me, it was the, the consumers. Um, they bought in five hours, they bought out all the inventory that would have kept a normal store uh, in business for a week. And so uh, just such a phenomenal response. And that, and. Uh, you know, the other thing that's just happened over the course of the summer is that we have launched our product in the Dunkin' Donuts in Manhattan. And so that was for us a really exciting milestone because, you know, that breakfast occasion is, is one um, we hadn't really captured before. But we have a, a wonderful breakfast sausage patty um, that we sell there. And, and then the other thing we announced over the summer was a partnership with Subway. And so we're going to be doing some tests with them in the coming um, uh, weeks ahead. And so that's exciting because that's a Obviously, a lot of um, I, my my sons and I, the, my sons grew up with the uh, the veggie patty from Subway, and it was, yeah. I guess I could say, adequate for. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't many other options, but uh, we're really excited that there'll be you know additional options available at a chain like that. So all of those restaurant opportunities are, are continued to come on, and then 
The other thing we're seeing is continued growth in, in, of course, in the grocery channel in the United States, and then in addition, what's happening around the world. Um, there's, this is a, a brand and a product that is by no means exclusive to the United States. So we're seeing tremendous interest from Europe as well as uh, Asia and other continents, and, and so just um, wonderful to see it grow. So what's it like to try to meet this kind of demand? Is, is scaling just overwhelming? <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's. It's. It is very um, intense. You know, we. Uh, I've been around a lot of fast-growing food companies. You know, going back to my honest tea roots, and you know, we were growing 100% or 65% every year, um, and that was great. But this is this is just a different level of growth, and um, so it, it it is stressful. We um, for the past two summers had challenges with supply where we weren't able to meet all the demand. And that's so frustrating because the consumers get frustrated and the, and the customers get frustrated because they want, you know, and the, the restaurants get frustrated. Of course, we want to be able to sell it to them. But we made very aggressive investments um, in the past year around the, the, the people, the infrastructure, the supply chain. And, of course, that was one of the purposes of the IPO was to make sure we wouldn't have that problem again. So, and this summer has been much better. You know, there's been some occasional out-of-stocks, you know, just in between shipments, but nothing that's um, prolonged or, or, or as painful. And, and, but, you know, um, what we do now is we, um, especially I guess with the official end of summer, we go back and we continue to build out that supply chain. We, we secure contracts with new suppliers for, for peas and other ingredients, and then we just make sure we're, we're ready to continue to support the growth. Of course, not just in the United States, but around the world. We, we did um, announce we're setting up production in Europe, and that'll be up and running early next year. So, you know, we, we just continue to, to make sure we have, uh, as they say, if they, if, they, if they are demanding it, we need to build it. Oh, that's like the movie about the baseball field. <laughs> so Almost like you that. Talked... I guess I'm paraphrasing there. <laughs> So you talked about Dunkin' and, and Subway and some of these big chains and certainly Coca-Cola that bought Honest Tea. So I'm just wondering if you have a word for the idealists. I happen yeah. to believe that doing business with large companies that may not share our every single value is what's going to change the world. I know a lot of people yeah. see it differently. Where do you come down on that? Well, that's an important question. It's certainly one that I've wrestled with and, and continue to wrestle with and and. Um, here's, what, here's how I think about it. Um, you have to insist that there's no compromise to the product you're selling. And so what that means for Honest Tea is that every product we sell uh, is or certified organic. Every tea uh, we sell is uh, made with um, fair trade certified uh, tea leaves and, and sugar, and that's without compromise. So any product you buy in the United States will have that. And then we've expanded the Honest brand around the world. And, and, and by the way, of course, also less sweet, so less sugar, uh, less sweetness than the typical drink out there. And, and I've launched the brand now across Europe and, and other parts of the world. And I'm you know, happy to say that the product has those same qualities um, wherever I've gone and wherever we've launched it. So to me, um, that's the, that was the dream, is to bring this to scale. I, I never just wanted to sell healthy drinks to healthy people. We wanted to democratize uh, organic and healthy drinks and fair trade certified drinks, and, and, and that is, is part of what we've done. With respect to Beyond Meat, I would say the same thing. You know, we um, feel that if we're going to democratize plant-based protein, we can't just, we, you know, look, at we love Whole Foods, we love co-ops, we love vegan restaurants. These are the, the, the basis and foundation of our business. But if we only sell to those people, we aren't going to make the difference we need to make. We're not going to make the difference in terms of the diet. We're not going to make the difference in terms of the planet. And we're not going to make the difference in terms of the animals who are part of the whole um, domesticated livestock industry. And so we have to get to scale. And that means we have to deal with partners and uh, what we, what we, when we work with them, you know, we will obviously make sure our products are um, going in vegan, um, you know, meaning there's, there's no, there's no um, compromise to that. When we're on a grill, it's, there's a challenge because, you know, um, if we're talking about a large chain, it, there may have been an animal-based product on that grill beforehand. And so certainly we will give them an explanation about um, cleaning the, <laughs> the grill or, or thinking about a separate thing, but we, we don't have the ability to in, insist on that. And so 
we, we want to make sure and we inform them to make sure they, their consumers understand, you know, don't use the word vegan uh, if there's the potential of some cross-contamination. So what we will say is plant-based. We will also encourage them to have a total um, vegan offering. So, for example, if they have, you know, they can make the product, if they are using dairy cheese, let's have them use either no cheese or, or plant-based cheese. If they have a bun that might have some egg or some milk, we'll encourage them to offer a bun without that or to offer a – some of them will offer, a, you know, a lettuce, um, basically wrap as a way to serve the product. So um, from my point of view, they are – these large players are a critical part of how we get this movement to scale. Uh, and, and, of course, what happens, and we've seen it already with several chains, once they see how the consumer responds, they add more. You know, we, we launched with Del Taco, which is a big chain out west, and the first thing they, they took on, you know, Beyond Tacos, the response was so positive, they said, we've got to make a, a Beyond Burrito. And then the same thing happened with A&W uh, as well. They, they started with our uh, burger, and then when it did so well, this was in Canada, they added on the breakfast sausage patty. So um, we can make more progress and more impact if we get these partners on board. Oh, I completely agree. I was telling you before we started that when they first started having the, the breakfast sandwiches at Duncan and I saw the one in my neighborhood and ju just did a double take, my dog and I out for our morning stroll. And it was just so much fun to go yeah. into a place that is pure Americana. And yeah, I said, I, well, what I said was it's a real egg, right? And he's like, yes. I said, okay, no egg. And is it vegan cheese? And it was so cute. This young man said, no vegan cheese yet. And I thought, <laughs> somebody behind a counter at a Dunkin' Donuts knows what vegan That's cheese it. is. And so That's I brought it. it home, you know, just the patty and, <laughs> and the bread um, to share with my husband and my dog. We actually photographed it and put it on Instagram, a little video, oh, because so the dog fun. was just sure it was meat. So oh. he's, he's always my, how meaty is this plant-based product tester? That's so neat. Passed That's with great. flying well, colors. That, yeah, like you say, it gets, it gets the people in the restaurant thinking, it gets the people at the corporate headquarters thinking as well. And, and you know, look at when that happened with KFC um, just the other, a few days ago, that had to get the attention of all these other restaurants because, you know, the question is, does, does this kind of offering create more awareness and excitement and, uh, and you know i think the answer is definitively yes yes and and it gets so much press it's fascinating to me how how the media is amazed right. <laughs> plant-based foods so well it's an exciting time we're living in this you know uh, even five years ago there just wasn't this level of innovation and this level of excitement and so you know, we all collectively are experiencing, uh, this is a watershed movement, mo moment for this movement. It is indeed. So you use the word democratize. And one argument that we hear is, well, I can't eat that way. It costs too much. I right. mean, it's good food. So it's well, going to cost something. But what do you say to that? That's interesting. So that, that breakfast sausage patty that you bought at Dunkin' um, is the exact same price as the meat-based option they have. And so, um, in, you know, in, in this case, that's, that's really not a valid argument. Now, yes, there are, if you go to the grocery store, the Beyond Burgers are about $12 a pound or $10 a pound if you buy the bulk. But that's more, you know, grass-fed organic beef is about $8 a pound. So, yes, we are more. But we are in the very earliest stages of this. You know, we basically just brought this product to market at scale, you know, a little more than a year ago. And so, like any new technology, it's going to take time to scale and, our belief is that within five years, we're actually going to be able to have products that underprice their um, animal-based analogs. So um, we are confident, and, and, and the reason, of course, is because, and we talked about you know, the environmental footprint, when you use 99% uh, less water and 93% less land, uh, it's much easier to make this product you know, inexpensively. So over time, that will happen. It's just a matter of, of, of scale. And we're, that's, you know, changing quickly. That is so thrilling. Okay, so that's happening in five years. Let's look ahead 10 years. What are okay. humans eating? Well, we love to take a page out of what's happened in the plant-based dairy uh, category. And so what I mean by that is if you look at the dairy category or you go to a dairy cooler, about 13% of the sales are plant-based. 
we think that the same will happen uh, with uh, the meat section, or we're, we're going to be redefining it as the protein section of a grocery store. So I think at least 13% of uh, the meat category will be uh, plant-based, but it, you know, it certainly could happen even more quickly uh, if, if we see, you know, I'd say, current trends continue to accelerate. And I think what's equally exciting is the mindset that people, or especially our children, or our children's children will have, which is, and this is, this is kind of, think, put this in the scope of human evolution, that there will be a generation of kids growing up who, when we talk about meat, they'll define, they'll think of meat as, um, it doesn't mean it's from an animal. It just means, oh, it's that, you know, <laughs> that meaty thing I eat, you know, that, that, that thing that has the, the protein that tastes good. But they won't uh, automatically assume that when you talk about meat, you're referring to, um, you know, something from a, a, an animal. I love that. So <laughs> just for fun, Seth Goldman, Honest Tea and Beyond Meat, how do you like your burger? Ah, well, I actually, so tonight we're having uh, Beyond Tacos. So we make our Ooh. own tacos. We take the Beyond ground beef and we um, put it in a pan with um, some spices and uh, eat it just, uh, we just love it that way. So that's, that's what's on the dinner at home tonight. I love it. it and, and, you know, it's really good. I mean, I've been eating this way for uh, decades. We'll just leave it at decades. <laughs> and, you know, I think we kind of put up with, yeah, you know, it sort of works. It's sort of somewhat resembles what I remember. Yeah. But now so many of these foods are so good and beyond meat, yeah. in my opinion, is just the best of the best. So well, um, very so quickly, in our last second, your wish for the world. Oh, boy. <laughs> so many. But it, I, I, it, it is that this this movement spreads and becomes embraced, not seen as a threat, but really an opportunity for all of us. I mean, you know, it's the single biggest way we each can affect the planet. Um, everyone's concerned about global warming, but nobody uh, has a way to do something on a daily basis, and this is a way to do it. And, and this, if, if we can infuse that mindset, we can see change happen. Wow. And this is a way to do it deliciously, too. Thank you so, so very much, Seth Goldman. All the best. Everybody else, stay with us. We've got Miyoko, the cheese whisperer. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hello, favorite people. Without further ado, one of my favorite people, a pioneer of the plant-based cheese revolution, Miyoko Shinner is the fearless founder and CEO of Miyoko's, a food brand combining culinary traditions with food technology. They revolutionized dairy by making cheese and butter without the cows. Shinner has successfully scaled the production of fermented cheese and cultured butter made from plants and replaced animal dairy products on the shelves of more than 10,000 retailers nationwide. And then when she's just sitting around with nothing else to do, she's a best-selling cookbook author. She's co-host of the national PBS cooking show, Vegan Mashup, and a founding board member of the Plant-Based Foods Association. And she has a farmed animal sanctuary, providing a home to over 70 formerly farmed animals in California. Welcome, Miyoko. Hi, Victoria. Hi. I just love reading all those things about you because I love you so much. My gosh, you're such an amazing human being. I'm so happy well, that it, you're it in the world. <laughs> and Thank I know so I'm much. not nearly as happy as the cows are, that you are out there making all these amazing products. So just like I asked Seth in the first segment, please start out with a little bit of a history lesson. How did it all start? Well, it's quite interesting because uh, 
this coming Friday, five years ago, was when we went live on e-commerce as Miyoko's Kitchen. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I didn't know if anybody would even buy any cheese. We hadn't really done any marketing. There were only like four or five of us in the company at the time. And Monday morning, showed up at work. We had $50,000 in orders, and it was like, holy, what are we going to do? Um, so that was sort of the beginning. Um, but it did start in my humble little kitchen at home, um, experimenting for a number of years. I had you know, piles of uh, cheese and different uh, stages of fermentation all over my kitchen, and people were always coming in and going, what is all of this? And then uh, eventually it led to starting the company, which just sort of took off from day one. So uh, right now we are now in Canada. We're in about a thousand stores in Canada. Uh, we're shipping our first container load to Australia today. Oh. Uh, we just got an order from South Africa, of all places, where we'll be shipping a small order. Uh, we have some distribution in Hong Kong as well. So uh, and we're in talks with a potential distributor in Europe. So there's a lot going on. Uh, we also just rolled out at Walmart this uh, this summer and uh, expanding in Target stores, uh, expanding in public stores, expanding in Kroger. So really, really hitting up uh, mass market retailers, not just the natural foods retailers where we have very, very good distribution. Um, and, uh, and we're launching new products and uh, setting kind of a new direction for our company. So it's very, very exciting. There's a lot going on. Uh, but what's most exciting is that we are all, all of us, including Beyond Meat and Impossible and so many of these other plant-based companies, we're at the tipping point of veganism, of converting the world to a plant-based, a plant-based world. To uh, it's a major food revolution that's never ever happened before in the history of mankind. It's very, very exciting. And you are right there on the pulse of it. And you're not only there and doing it, but you do it with such style and such class. So I'm just well, thinking you. about your cheeses. Every single cheese, and listeners, if there's anybody out there who has not had Miyoko's cheese, I mean, just to turn off the podcast. You can listen to the rest later. Go to the store, get yourself some Miyoko's cheese. It is amazing. But one of them comes wrapped in, in a fig leaf. And another one has, has this amazing black ash on it that doesn't sound delicious, but it is. Where do you get these ideas? And what gave you the sense that, that your products needed to not just be really good, they needed to be exquisite? Well, you know, all of that really, what I did was I studied traditional cheese making. I was the, I took a class at the local junior college and I was the only student that didn't actually try any of the things that we made, but I wanted to understand what the uh, you know the science was behind cheese making, and wrapping cheese in things like fig leaves or coating it in ash or using ash as part of the cheese making process are things that have been going on in Europe for hundreds of years. They're part of traditional cheese making, so I really just borrowed from tradition and then applied it to uh, plant-based ingredients and developed new methodologies that would uh, make them seem more like cheese because the proteins in plant-based foods aren't necessarily akin to dairy. And so they don't necessarily perform exactly the same way to the same type of enzymes or cultures. So you have to do a little bit of tweaking to get them to behave more like cheese. Um, and in terms of like how, why did I think they need to be exquisite? It was because until uh, very, very recently, I mean, I hate to say this, and I certainly you know, want to give kudos to some of the earlier pioneers in vegan cheese from 20, 30 years ago, but the fact of the matter is, the reality was that most vegan cheese was, you know, was sort of laughable. People sort of made jokes about vegan cheese. It was like, vegan cheese, ha ha. You know, don't, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot chopstick. It was that kind of thing. And so my goal when I first wrote the book, Artisan Vegan Cheese, was to show that making exquisite vegan cheese was not only possible, but it was attainable in the comfort of your own home. And I had no intention of going to business at the time. I just wanted to show people that you could actually make this stuff. And it, you know, it wasn't just the processed cheese that you'd put on a burger type of thing, but it was really this amazing, fantastic cheese that you could put on a cheese board. And now, today, there are hundreds of vegan cheesemakers all over the country, in fact, all over the world, 
making artisan vegan cheeses. I've I've gone to vegan cheese shops in in Hungary and Italy and other places uh, that are making high end vegan cheeses. And there's so many manu- you know small time manufacturers here as well too. So it's a very very exciting movement. Um, I, and we have to have the entire gamut from the ex- exquisite you know, artisan products that you would put on a cheese platter to the type of, you know, the slices and the shreds that you'd put on a burger too because we have to solve both of, we have to solve all of those problems if we're going to replace dairy products. We have to have the high-end stuff and the everyday run-of-the-mill stuff. We have to have it all. So I think this is such an exciting time because people are doing it. Um, I think one of the issues, um, if I'm not rambling too much, is that Producing this product, um, you know, creating artisan vegan cheeses and commercializing it and scaling it is the biggest challenge. Um, I think we're, we've been the most successful in doing this so far, and it took a very, very long time, and it took a lot of money to create uh, a facility that could do it to vet these processes. And we found that when we first scaled, I'll be truthful, when we first moved into our, our facility that we built, uh, and we moved into 18 months ago, Things were really disastrous for the first six months, and I was afraid the whole thing was going to come tumbling down. Um, It didn't work. I mean, just scaling it from 40-pound batches to 2,200-pound batches was a major ordeal, and initially it was disastrous. The cheeses didn't congeal. They were liquid in their pouches. People were getting mushy product. Um, and I didn't know if we could we could correct it or not. We were able to finally. We were able to figure out what it was that was causing that reaction. But the commercialization process is is huge because this is all new new territory. It's new technology. Um, and uh, you know, I hope others are able to figure out how to commercialize their products um, more easily than we were able to. Well, you are a pioneer, Miyoko, and and you do not quit. You. you... You're so strong and so full speed ahead. So your products are also organic. They're non-GMO. And that's expensive. What do you do about the price point? Well, it's expensive, but it's necessary. Uh, and I think I, I'm a firm believer in organic. Organic is always non-GMO. Uh, and we, I'm also a firm believer in using whole food ingredients uh, to create new foods, to figure out how can you harness the power of plants, how can you unleash properties that were unknown before by using fermentation or other processes to create uh, these products. Uh, in terms of price point, we're by scaling, by uh, by. Uh, commercialization and building efficiencies, we can meet the margins that we have to meet. And we've um, been increasing our margins every single year. Our margins were very, very slim uh, initially because we were inefficient. And as we have refined our processes, we've gotten better and better and are able to buy products, you know, buy our supply chain, for example, uh, whether it's cashews or something else, we're able to buy them in larger quantities, which helps lower the pricing the prices, and we're able to um, make things uh, at a more affordable price point. Uh, we will be launching a new line of cheeses coming out next spring that will be made from legumes and potatoes and grains, and they will be at a lower price point than the um, the artisan cheeses that we had initially. That's exciting. I mean, I've had some cheese sauces homemade, made from potatoes, but the idea that you could make cheese that way, that's going to be something to try. Oh, it's really, really exciting. Um, you know, we have this cheddar cheese that will, that animal cheese lovers say um, they can't distinguish it from dairy cheese, that it tastes identical. Mm. Isn't it funny to be so dedicated a vegan and absolutely not want there even to be animal food, but have the big compliment to be? <laughs> It's just like yeah. animal food. Aww. I, so think, I mean, just, that's what we have to get. You know, that's what Impossible, that's what Beyond tried to do, was get close enough to an animal product that they could land at places like Carl's Jr. or Taco Bell or, or whatever. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So, you so, know, we're doing something. Every They've solved the burger problem. The other popular food is pizza, and we're trying to solve that pizza problem. And we've got a revolutionary cheese that we're going to be rolling out for food service that does solve that problem. Oh, that's wonderful. 
my, my half Italian side is saying, yes, you go on that one. So your growth is phenomenal. Uh, I have the statistics from your office that Miyoko's Creamery grew 169% in 2019 and the year isn't even over yet so that was 2018 actually yeah oh okay so yeah this year it's similar but it's not yeah Mm -hmm. go ahead what that's like for you as an entrepreneur but also how it translates into dairy and non-animal dairy in general um, well, you know, it's it's really exciting. It's really fun to be part of this company. Um, you know, I um, am the founder, obviously, but everyone has helped to fuel the growth of this company. Everyone who works here, and it's very, very fast paced. Um, our director of finance yesterday was saying that he's never had so much fun in his life working at a company, and he doesn't think he could ever work at a traditional, uh, you know, slower, more mature company again because it's just not as exciting or fun. But he said, it, you know, he realizes that this kind of growth is not for everyone, that there are people that would really, really struggle, would have trouble keeping up with it and, and get really – you can be come completely overwhelmed uh, if you're like, go, go, go all the time. But that's what this company is like. And it's wonderful. Uh, we love it. But we feel that it's necessary because of the urgency of what's going on in the world with climate change, with the Amazon burning down, with animals being killed – not just farmed animals, but the wildlife that are losing their habitat because of uh, the encroachment of animal agriculture. And we have to respond quickly if we're going to, start, if we're going to rever- reverse climate change. Our opportunity is now to provide solutions to consumers so they can make choices that are more sustainable, that are healthier for them, for animals, for the environment, and together we can save the planet. But we have to work now. We don't have a lot of time to waste. Um, so, you know, this is why we're doing what we're doing. Mm. So how do you personally manage it? What do you do with your diet, your sleep? Do you meditate? How do you go oh around the clock? <laughs> uh, I, I have a pretty crazy life. Sometimes I wonder, hmm, when will this ever slow down? Um, but I travel a lot. I'm on the road quite a bit. Um, you know, it's what I do have is this animal sanctuary you talked about. And the animal sanctuary is actually my sanctuary also. So that's really where I find peace. Um, There's nothing I enjoy more than just being out there, whether it's shoveling manure, petting the animals, communing with them, um, talking to the volunteers, um, doing activities that are, uh, you know, I don't know, showing visitors around. I enjoy that so much. It gives me such peace. It grounds me, makes me feel connected to uh, the earth to animals to the whole cause of, of what I'm doing. And I think that's how I re- really recruit my energy. Um, that and hanging out with my dogs, going for runs with them. I, I'm not a very good meditator. I wish I could learn a lot of that from you, Victoria. Um, I know you're, you, you've got a mindfulness training um, that, you know, I can feel it from you. I don't think, I think I'm running at a more frenetic pace. We'll put it that way. But I also feel like my opportunity is now to make a difference, and so I've got to go. I've got to seize the moment, and I've got to go until I can make the change that I want to make or as much change as I can impact and then try to inspire others to do the same. Mm, and you are doing it. So tell us about some of your animals. What varieties of animals are there? Oh, boy. Uh, we've got cows, goats, sheep, pigs, uh, ducks, geese donkeys, um, chickens, turkeys, uh, you name it. It's, it's really, really fun. We have a cow named Angel who has a best friend who is, whose name is Echo, and Echo is a goose, oh. and the two of them hang oh. out together. Um, it, it's so sweet. Um, we just rescued um, re- most recently uh, four goats, two ba- uh, baby goats, actually, so they're called kids, so two of each um, at two different times, so total of four. That's our most recent adoption, um, we have a, on our social media, our sanctuary is called ranchocompasion.org, so it's like Rancho Compassion, but it's Spanish, so only one S. If you go to our website, ranchocompasion.org, or go to our Facebook page, you'll see pictures of uh, probably the most beloved creature at the sanctuary right now, uh, whose name is Oliver, and he is a pig that we rescued about five months ago when he was about 35 pounds. He's about 350 pounds now. And uh, his antics are just 
so fun. He was a luau. He was going to be a suckling pig, um, going to be buried in the dirt to be a luau pig. And a couple of vegans managed to rescue him from the farmer. So he's now living his good life. And for the first couple of months, I had him in the house, and he was sleeping on the dog bed. And then he just um, started getting so big and knocking everything over. And, you know, he's a little clumsy, we'll put it that way. So now he's down in the barn with everybody else. But uh, we've got all kinds of characters living there, and, and they're just wonderful. Oh, I can I can just imagine how, how just nourishing that must be, that as you are in your your kitchen, you're very much a large kitchen now, making all these exquisite products to change the world. You can go back and get a wonderful reminder of why you're doing it. So I know, Miyoko, that some people have caused you some difficulty by saying that you can't call your butter butter, even though everybody that eats it says, wow, this is just like butter. Yes. Well, you know, and, and that's, the problem we're all going to have at this point in uh, in the evolution of food. There's a food revolution going on. We're eating foods that are different from what we've eaten for hundreds or thousands of years. We're creating a new food system that's essential because of what our industrialized agriculture has done to the world. And so we're going to get questioned by the incumbent industry or by regulators, and that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the FDA has standards of identity that say what you can or can't call various foods, and butter has a certain definition. All dairy products are defined as the lacteal secretions of one or more healthy cows, free of colostrum, and so on and so on and so on. And obviously, you know, our products aren't made from the milk of a cow. So we're going to be challenged, and that's the reality. That's the inevitable reality, and I embrace it. Um, we've had our products pulled off of shelves in the state of Wisconsin, um, we've had, uh, we're potentially facing similar things, uh, in California. They haven't taken any action yet, but the California CDFA, which is the, the regulatory arm that, uh, oversees dairy manufacturing, um, has, is now, uh, overseeing dairy replicas such as us. And we're supposed to abide by all the regulations of dairy, of the dairy industry, but we're not allowed to call our products uh, dairy terms. So, you know, it's like you have to follow the rules, but you don't get any of the benefits of, of the rules. Um, and that's what's going on right now, and we're going to challenge it on First Amendment rights. Um, I welcome these challenges because it brings the conversation out to the limelight, to the public sphere where people can weigh in on, you know, what's happening and what these foods should be called and, and what sort of future we should create for food. Food just happened before. It was something that people really didn't think about. It wasn't intentional. And now we're at a point in history where we have to be intentional about our food choices, about what foods we create, and we have to drive that change. And that's going to create a lot of uh, friction, um, and uh, some, you know, unhappiness uh, among certain people. But a lot of happiness among other people and cows. So that's correct. All, absolutely, there's a lot. So yeah, absolutely. All good in the end. So Miyoko, I ask Seth this as well. What do you think humans are going to be eating ten years from now? Oh, well, as you probably know, Seth might have said this as well, too, but about 14% uh, of the fluid milk category now comprises of non-dairy milks. And I think a similar thing will happen in all of the other areas. Within the next 10 years, things are going to change exponentially. Ten years from now, people are, I would say it's going to be like a 50-50. Uh, you're going to, the, the vegan vegetarian population uh, with the, you know, the Generation Xs and uh, and so on growing up, uh, will be, um, I think, at least 50% of the market. It's pretty exciting. Oh, well, wow. yeah, what did Seth say? I want to know. Or do and I we can say we remember back when vegan yeah. cheese wasn't even good. Yeah. 
So what's your diet like? You're so busy and you're such an exquisite person with food. I mean, you, you have wonderful books. Uh, what, what was your book about making everything from scratch, like mustard oh, and mayonnaise? Oh, The Homemade Vegan Pantry. The Homemade Vegan Pantry. The Homemade Vegan Pantry. Wonderful book. Yeah. All your books are wonderful. But I feel like right now in your life, you probably don't have a lot of time to do leisurely kitchen fun. So what's what's your food like? Oh, well, you know, I, I'm very, very lucky because at Miyoko's, uh, we have a full-time chef and sous chef who prepare meals for us. So we have uh, we feed our entire staff. There's breakfast, there's lunch, there's dinner, there's snacks, there's whatever you want. It's all organic, it's all vegan, it's all whole foods, it's delicious. So, you know, um, I oftentimes, um, I'll do intermittent fasting uh, quite a bit, and I'll often just uh, come here and uh, sometime around midday, I'll have a big salad, or I might have uh, whatever entree they've made. Um, you know, there, there'll be beans, there's a big salad bar, there's all kinds of delicious whole foods, things here to eat. Um, at home, we have a big vegetable garden. We often eat, right now, it's obviously zucchini season, so I eat a lot of zucchini. And I cook very simply at home. You know, it might just be some brown rice with some vegetables, or I, I might make a simple vegetable soup or something like that, or um, you know, just something really quick in one-pot dishes. Those are uh, things that we eat frequently. So very, very complicated, very simple. Uh, do I eat a lot of my cheese? Well, I have to, we're doing, you know, our R&D department has something called Grateful Shreds every single Friday where I have to taste their creations. Um, It's not like I'm (laughs) suffering or anything, but uh, honestly, I'm I'm kind of at a point where I really just like, um, you know, I like my veggies. I feel best when I'm eating just vegetables and uh, with a little bit of grain and a little bit of, uh, like, you know, some beans on the side. Um, So that's kind of my diet. It's very simple. I travel a lot. When I travel, I eat whatever vegan stuff is around. Um, and uh, the one thing I do look for during Grateful Shreds are the amazing grilled cheese sandwiches and this amazing cheesy garlic butter that we'll be launching soon as well. Uh, we're expanding our butter lineup, so we're going to uh, launch some spreadable butters in tubs uh, made with oat milk instead of cashew milk. And I also love eating our pizza with our new uh, amazing future cheese mozzarella. Well, future cheese and the future in general sounds very bright with you in it, Miyoko Schinner. Bless you and Rancho Compassion.org. Everybody visit there and get yourself some magnificent Miyoko's cheese and butter. And hey, while you're at it, go have a Beyond Burger. It's all good. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for sponsoring this program. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be kind, be healthy, be happy, be vegan. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.